Today's scripture reading is from Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I do want to encourage you to have your Bibles open. Uh, if you are using the Pew Bible in front of you, we're on page 774 in that, uh, in that Bible. If uh, not, look it up in your own. But be looking in uh, Jonah chapter 2. I titled the sermon this morning, uh, the, the Bible in Five Words, because those five words in the English at the, ver- at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, really is a great summary of the entire Bible. So if somebody asks you, what's the Bible about? You can do more than say it's about God or it's about Jesus. Both of those things are true. Ultimately, it's about the salvation that is God's to give, the salvation that God provides to all who call out to him in faith. And so that's the Bible in five words. It's, it's really Christianity, if you will, in five words. And it's a wonderful truth to hear if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I hope it's beginning to be a wonderful truth that could be yours. It's certainly a, a, an easy thing to say out loud. But my oh my, is it a hard thing to believe? That salvation belongs to the Lord. It's hard to, to let that truth sink down deep into our hearts and really believe it. And so God employs trials. He brings storms in order to teach us how willing he is to save us. That's what's happening in Jonah. The, the storm that Jonah was facing, the, the sea, the, the Mediterranean Sea that he found himself sinking in, ultimately the fish that would swallow him up, these were all storms brought by God in order to help Jonah learn how much God loved him and wants to save him. So the storm that may be rising up in your life right now, it's not a storm in which God is seeking to destroy you or in which God is trying to indicate that he has rejected you. God brings storms into our lives in order to show us how much he loves us and wants to save us if we will look to him and receive the salvation that belongs only to him and in whom it alone can be found. 
That's the lesson that God was seeking to teach Jonah, but how long did it take Jonah to learn that lesson? And how far away from God's presence did he have to try to run? How deep into the sea did he need to sink before he finally had that lesson come home to him? And how far do we run? And how deep do we sink in the midst of the trials and the difficulties, the circumstances, the, the suffering in our lives before we'll finally cry out to God and receive the salvation that is from him alone? So the journey I want us to think about this morning, this, when we look at this sermon, is, is Jonah's journey and how our journey can often run parallel to Jonah's journey. Jonah's journey from that, that place where God spoke to him and said, go to Nineveh, down to Joppa, down to the boat, down into the hold of the boat, ultimately down into the sea and, and ultimately into the belly of the fish. That journey and how our journey can often parallel that journey. And I want to do that under three headings. The headings of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar. He organized all the Psalms under those three headings. Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and Psalms of reorientation. I'm going to steal those categories, but I'm actually going to use them in slightly different ways to talk about Jonah's journey and to talk about our journey. So really, we're, we're kind of summarizing chapters 1 and 2. We're reaching back into chapter 1 a little bit, but really going to focus on chapter 2 this morning as we consider Jonah's orientation. What was his orientation with respect to God prior to being thrown off the boat? And then secondly, what happened in Jonah's life that brought disorientation? What was it that brought this sense of, of dislocation and desperation for Jonah with respect to himself, to, the, to his surroundings, but ultimately with respect to his relationship with God? And then what did Jonah's reorientation look like? How was his disorientation used by a loving and sovereign God to bring about reorientation in his heart toward God? So Jonah's orientation, Jonah's disorientation, and then Jonah's reorientation. But as we look at each of those three, we're going to ask the same question of ourselves and ultimately, what do we do about it in Christ? Before we jump in though, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study this beautiful passage of Scripture. Lord, a, a prayer that was prayed by a, a real man in a real fish in a real sea, because we believe this is true. And that we pray that we would see ourselves as we so often are, just like Jonah. But that we would see that there are things here that Jonah does that we are called to do. And there's a place that we're called to look, ultimately to you, Lord Jesus. So help us to see you this morning through Jonah's story. Help us to be reoriented towards you, if in fact we have been turned away. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jonah's orientation. Jonah's orientation was all wrong, right? Jonah was heading west when he should have been heading east. God said, go east, O my prophet, to Nineveh. And he was heading 
west to Tarshish. But it wasn't just a, a compass heading issue when it came to Jonah's orientation. His orientation was off spiritually and his orientation was off emotionally as well. Jonah should have been heading upward and outward. Upward in ever-growing fellowship with God. Outward to the Ninevites with God's heart for their salvation. Instead, Jonah was heading downward and inward. His downward descent from his home down to the port city of Joppa and then from a, a deck by the edge of the water in Joppa down onto the boat, the deck of the boat, and then from the deck of the boat down into the hold of the boat, and then from the hold of the boat ultimately down into the depths of the sea was emblematic of his flight from the presence of God. So there was this downward trajectory in Jonah's life, and there was this inward trajectory in Jonah's life, and I think you see it especially from the fact that in the middle of the storm, he slept. How was it that he was so cut off from reality, so turned in on himself that he could sleep? Maybe it was due to the, you know, the sheer exhaustion that comes when you are running from God. I, th I think of the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal sons in Luke chapter 15. And how exhausted. I mean, it's a parable. I know that's not an historical event. But if you, if you put yourself in that parable as if it were an historical event and you've got this younger brother who has taken his share of the inheritance and he is running and running, getting as far away as he can from the father's side, trying to find life in, in all this you know, wild and crazy living, always ending up with the pigs at the end of the day, always ending up eating what they're eating. How tired he must have been. It's exhausting running from the presence of God. I'm sure the walk from Jonah's home to Joppa was a long one. I'm sure it made him tired. But it's a far greater distance and far more exhausting to try to run from the presence of God. So, so maybe Jonah was just exhausted. Maybe that's why he slept. But it may be that Jonah also had this sense of false peace, right? Again, his orientation is all wrong. Maybe he had this sense of false peace. Like maybe as he was leaving his home to go to Joppa, where he started off initially doubting God's goodness and rejecting God's word, God could possibly want me to go preach to the Ninevites. They're our enemy. The Assyrian Empire, we want nothing to do with them. God, I don't believe you're good. And so he leaves. But maybe somewhere along the way as he made his way down to Joppa, he convinced himself, you know, maybe I heard God wrong. Maybe that was actually a test. You know, maybe when God came to me that second time and said, I want you to do something that you know and I know ultimately contradicts what I said to you the first time, which was that Israel was going to prosper and our, our boundaries were going to expand because the Assyrian Empire was on the decline. Maybe God was just testing me. So, so maybe I'm actually right in the center of God's will. It's not so much that God's not good. It's, it's that he was really just trying to help me be confirmed in what I'm feeling right now, which is surely God doesn't want me to go there. He wants me to go to Tarshish. Why not Tarshish? 
And so, you know, there, I'll think through all these things. And, and he's making his way down to Joppa, and he, he turns the corner, and he's thinking, I wonder how long I'm going to be stuck in Joppa before I can make my way to Tarshish. And then he sees a boat, and he goes up to the boat, and he says to the captain, where are you going? I'm heading to Tarshish. We're leaving right now. And Jonah says, it's a sign. God is in this. I'm actually right in the center of God's will. He's provided a boat for me to get there, for crying out loud. And so he laid down and slept. This storm can't hurt me. If anything, it's going to move me further along. Of course, it was in ways that Jonah could have anticipated. So maybe there was this sense of false peace. Maybe that's why he was sleeping. Maybe it was because his conscience was just so hard. It wasn't so much that he left his homeland, doubting God's goodness, and then convincing himself that, that God was just testing him, as it was deeper and deeper entrenchment in the conviction that the God he has served can't possibly be good. And when you live that way, your conscience just becomes seared. It gets hard. It becomes insensitive. And so, so maybe Jonah slept because Jonah just didn't care anymore about God. Whatever the case is, whatever was leading to Jonah's slumber, it, it wasn't because he was a deep sleeper. This was either sheer emotional exhaustion that comes from running from God, or it was the sense of false peace, or it was that his conscience was now hard. What do we learn from Jonah's false orientation, his misorientation? Well, I think we learn a few things. First, I think we learn there's no treading water when it comes to your, pun intended, no treading water, Jonah. I know, it's early. There's no treading water when it comes to your walk with Jesus. You are either moving upward and outward or you're moving downward and inward. There's no sitting still. Second, we too can convince ourselves that we're heading in the right direction. We can so easily convince ourselves that what I know God's word is saying to me, this conviction that the Spirit is giving me that's in line with God's word, that can't possibly be God. Oh, we, we're Jonah. I'm Jonah. And our consciences can grow hard. You may be running right now thinking, you know what, this sin is no big deal. I mean, Jesus died to forgive me for this sin. God loves to forgive my sin. I love to sin. This is a great arrangement. And so I'm just going to keep on sinning. And then you become more and more calloused in your soul, more and more hardened, less and less responsive to the Spirit of God dwelling within you who seeks to guide you into all truth, lead you closer to the heart of your Savior, upward and outward, not downward and inward. What do we do? What does Jonah teach us? Well, it's actually in the background of chapter 2 that we see what we need to do. Chapter 2, it probably sounded to you a lot like a psalm, right? And you may think, man, Jonah's probably quoting a psalm. Maybe if I check the references, I can go back and find it. And then you realize, if you've got cross-references in your Bible, there's a ton of psalms that are here. It's actually true. Jonah is either directly referring to, uh, directly referring to or alluding to the following psalms. In these 
Eight, eight verses, really, because you can't count Psalm, uh, you know, verse 1. Psalm 3, Psalm 5, Psalm 16, Psalm 18, Psalm 31, Psalm 42, Psalm 50, Psalm 65, Psalm 88, and Psalm 120. All of that just within this little section. Now, liberal scholars will say, well, this is obviously proof that not only is the story made up, but, but at some point they thought, you know, we ought to make this prayer look as neat and tidy as it possibly can. And so we're just going to weave in all these different psalms. Well, why would that have to be the case? I mean, Jonah knew the psalms. He sang them all the time. He had them memorized. Why wouldn't we expect someone who had hidden God's word in his heart to pray God's word back out in his moment of distress? And there's the first lesson. Hide God's word in your heart. Hide God's word in your heart. As you do, stick near to God in prayer. Keep moving out in obedience. Keep moving on in repentance and faith because that's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin that we're always cashing in hourly, daily, however often. Keep on with the weekly rhythm of worship through word and sacrament. All these things are essential if we're going to avoid that false sense of peace or avoid that exhaustion that comes with running from God or, 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 or resist having that hardened conscience because we've given ourselves over to sin. Stay near. Be ever upward and outward by the grace of God. So Jonah's orientation was off track and in so often ours can get off track as well. So God brings this blessed disorientation for Jonah in the context of a trial. What happens in disorientation? What happened for Jonah? He woke up. He woke up. I mean, let his sleeping be a metaphor for how so often we are spiritually sleeping. All this stuff is going on around us. This trial is happening and we're not awake to what God is seeking to do in the midst of the trial. Disorientation begins when you wake up and you realize that all is not right. All is not right in me and all is not right between me and God. You see that happening throughout this prayer. Verse 2, Jonah prays, Out of my distress I called out to the Lord. Out of the belly of Sheol, so the abode of the dead, I cried out to God. In verse 3, Jonah says, in, from, the, from the deep into the heart of the sea, the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jump down to verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. He's talking about the bottom of the sea. But this isn't just about Jonah and his impending death and his surroundings. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. 
ultimately the issue. The, the thing that Jonah woke up to was the fact that the God that he had been seeking to run from, he was actually being driven away from and that terrified him. What he, what he thought was a proper orientation, west, away from the presence of God, he now realized was actually the, the, the root of his disorientation because he was feeling himself to be cut off from God. And then finally, when he literally hit bottom, he cried out to God. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Three things we learn from Jonah's disorientation. The first is this. Disorientation is actually good news. It's actually good news. That's a good thing when disorientation happens, right? It was for Jonah. He finally woke up. He saw what was happening. He cried out to the Lord. Listen, trials are going to come. Suffering is inescapable. Jonah's trial was, it was abrupt. It was severe. It was going to be over quick one way or the other, right? Our trials can be extremely painful. And they can be much more long-lasting. It can be a lifetime of trial and of hardship. Waking up, coming to your senses, doesn't necessarily mean that the trial goes away. But with that waking up, the disorientation or the misorientation can be exposed so that by God's grace, you can be reoriented to God in the midst of the trial. Disorientation is actually good news. Second thing we learn from Jonah's disorientation is that we don't need to wait till we hit bottom, right? You don't have to sink all the way to the depths of the sin that you are in right now. You don't have to sink all the way to the depths of the despair you feel because of the trial that you're in that's not in any way caused by any sin of yours, but simply the result of life in a fallen world in relationship with fallen people who hurt you. You don't have to sink to the depths of despair in that in order to cry out to God. In fact, if you're applying the things that we talked about in the first point about hiding God's word in your heart and, and bringing God's word out of your heart in prayer to him when you feel that sense of distress, it won't make the trial necessarily any shorter, but it will shorten the disorientation and speed up the reorientation to God. So disorientation is actually good news. We need not wait until we hit the bottom. I love this hymn by Joseph Hart, Come Ye Sinners. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That speaks to my type of sin tendency, which is to think I've got to fix it before I can go to God. I've got to make it right. Maybe that's yours as well. You know, I, I've, got to, I've got to at least present myself in some way as having made some effort before I cry out to God. Listen, my dear friend, if you have not yet cried out to God, you have not yet been properly disoriented. You're still thinking that in some way you can fix this. Cry out to God now. Recognize you can't do it. Let not fitness make you linger. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. Third thing we learn from Jonah's disorientation is that we need not go it alone. Jonah was alone. Well, there was a fish. 
But Jonah was alone. We need not go it alone. I'm, uh, I'm participating in the Reformation service tonight, and uh, the pastor from the church where it's being held sent me a, the bulletin yesterday by email. And I opened up the bulletin. And was, actually, I was working on this part of the sermon yesterday. And um, I noticed in the bulletin a little note that said, you know, at the back of the sanctuary, there's a cry room for parents who need it with their children. And it hit me, you know what, the whole church ought to be the crying out room. Like every single room in the church ought to be the place where people come together and cry out to God together. The whole church is the crying out room. And the whole church is a crying out room where people cry out in community as a family and not in isolation. So third, let's look at Jonah's reorientation. What is the evidence that we get in chapter 2 of Jonah's reorientation to God? And I think you see it in three things. I think you see it when Jonah says, those were your waves, God. Those were your waves. And I think you see it also when Jonah says, you are my God. And then third, I think you see it when Jonah says, I will worship you. Those were your waves. You are my God. I will worship you. Let's take a look. Take a look at verses 3 through the first part of verse 6. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight. By who? By God. Verse 6, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains I went down. The, tri the, the waves were God's waves. Why was Jonah sinking down? Was it because of Jonah's sin? Yes. Was it because of God's sovereign grace and unfailing love for Jonah? Yeah, that too. The path from disorientation to reorientation always runs through a storm. Because we just don't naturally learn these things and apply these things. The path from disorientation to reorientation always passes through a storm. We saw that in our study of 1 Peter. Right? When, we, when first Peter, and Peter talked to First Peter about the fact that God brings trials in order to refine our faith, it's the same thing that's being lived out in Jonah's life, and it's the same thing that happens all the time in our lives if, Christian, if we're Christians. Reorientation involves recognizing, you know what? God, you're in this. You're in this. I can trust that you are up to something good. Even if this is a storm that I brought on myself because of my own sin or because of my own rebellion, whatever it may be, I can trust, God, that you, these are your waves. And they're from your hand for a good purpose of reclaiming me for yourself. Ultimately, the trials come to set us free. Another hymn uh, written by John Newton, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set, these free, set thee free. The weeds that were wrapped around Jonah's head when he was at the roots of the mountains were meant, were means that God employed to reorient Jonah's heart to himself. And Jonah knew it. These are your waves, God. 
Secondly, Jonah prayed, you are my God. I don't know if it hit you. When you, saw, when you read verse 1, verse 1 begins, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And that, the fact that there's the, the pronoun, the personal pronoun there, his, it struck me in a way that it hadn't before when I read Jonah. Either Jonah wrote Jonah in the third person while he was still alive or somebody else wrote Jonah after the fact because it had been passed down verbally and it was finally recorded. Either way, it would have been written by someone for whom the Lord was their God and it was written to people for whom the Lord was their God. And so you would expect to find here, and Jonah prayed to the Lord God or Jonah prayed to the Lord our God. I think it's significant that we have here either Jonah reinforcing in the third person or the author reinforcing something Jonah came to realize in a profound way that this God is my God. He is my God. You see it down in verse, end of verse 6 and end of verse 7. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. I think Jonah saw something that, that David would see. In Psalm 63, David cries out, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Have you come to a place in the midst of the trial that you are in right now? Are, are you seeing your heart being reoriented toward God such that you are in a new way recognizing that this God, the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the Lord of the storm, is your God. Not in a, yeah, I know things about him sense, but I know him because I've seen how he has been with me through the storm. Finally, Jonah's reorientation is complete because he says, I will worship you, God. Verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What does it look like to have your heart reoriented toward God? You say the storm is yours, O God. It comes ultimately from your hand for my good. You say, you're my God. From the depths I remembered not just things about you, I remembered you and I cried out to you. And then third, you worship. There is a new, perhaps deeper felt desire to worship God, to ascribe worth and glory to him because of all he's done for you. You realize anew what it means for salvation to indeed belong to the Lord. Now, somewhere... Deep in the Mediterranean Sea, sometime in the mid-8th century B.C., just after a storm had suddenly ceased above the surface of the water and before Jonah came into or was swallowed up by the great fish, Jonah cried out to God in faith. The question is, where did he get such faith? This is not a be-like-Jonah story, except in the sense that Jonah looked to the place of sacrifice and we must do the same thing. Jonah, look to the temple. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Was Jonah convinced that God was going to somehow, again, this is before he was in the belly of the fish, that he's, you know, he's in the fish reflecting back on this. Did Jonah somehow know, I don't know what's going to happen, but God's going to get me back to the place where I can be in Jerusalem and I can see the temple. 
Or did Jonah think, you know what, I may die here, but I will be present with God in that heavenly temple of which the earthly temple is a prototype? We don't know. But we know what Jonah knew about the temple. Jonah knew that in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. That without bloodshed and mercy shown would bring condemnation for all who would approach God because we all fall short and none of us can obey God. But above the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And onto the mercy seat, at the Day of Atonement, every year, blood would be sprinkled. Why? To make atonement. Jonah the sinner said, I will look there yet again. I will remember the place of sacrifice. And as Christians, we know what the temple pointed to. Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 12 said, one greater than the temple is here. Jesus is both temple and sacrifice. And so we look to him in faith. And Jesus secures our reorientation to him because Jesus died that we might forever be his. If you are feeling disoriented right now in the midst of the trial you're in, recognize that for what it is, God calling you back to himself. Look to God, not to your own strength. Look to Jesus and the sacrifice that he made so that all who look to him might be able to cry out with joy, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to always remember, to always remember that salvation belongs to you. And Lord, because we are so quick to forget and to find ourselves straying away and, and even convincing ourselves that we're on the right path, would you continue by your Spirit to draw us back Use whatever means necessary so that we might never, ever, ever escape your loving hand. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.